Well, I'm already full. Um, we all know that music is just a tool to point us where our minds and our hearts need to go. But I am so grateful for that tool. It is a gift from God. We are continuing our journey and we're coming toward the very end of our journey in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 8. Next week, I believe that will be the, uh, the last of these series and we'll be moving on to another book. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about that you'll never have to walk alone. But until then, let's read about what God has for us in facing death in light of the resurrection. Let's stand as we read. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let us always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, for some of you, do not get too comfortable. If you are 30 years and younger, I would like for you to stand and remain standing. Good job. Okay, Keho can't count. Now, remain standing. If you are 80 years old or older and you are able, would you stand? If you can't stand, would you raise your hand or have a surrogate to stand for you? All right, now, remain standing. Now, for you who are under 20 and over 80, I have this question for you. What are you doing now that will outlive you? What are you doing today with your life that will outlive your time on earth? Now, if you're under 80 and you're over 20... The question still remains. You will find out toward the end of my message why I picked those in their 20s or under 20 and over 80. Thank you. You may be seated. Finishing well has always been the issue in life. It's easy to get started, it's hard to finish. And it's even harder to finish well. Hanging in there as a Christian, as a Christ follower in a world that is hostile to Christ is not an easy thing. 
The world will entangle you with its philosophies and its thought and its policies and its political and moral ideas. Your flesh will desire to gratify itself. And the enemy will seek to destroy you. It is not easy. So the real test of your faith is this. Will you endure? Genuine faith in Christ perseveres to the finish line. Now, we've all heard that the Christian life is a marathon. It is not a hundred-yard sprint. When you see a man or a woman running at the end of their long run, you wonder where did they get the energy. They're almost in a sprint. This is the way I'd like for us to envision what's going on with Paul. Paul has, as we will see and we've read, he fought the good fight. He has run his course, so to speak. And yet here he is in prison and it looks like he is in full mode. Of running. Now, I'd want to know someone's secret for that. He's looking at death. He's encouraging Timothy because of his death. I'm sure Timothy, being his closest disciple and son in the Lord, weeps as he reads this for the first time. And he tells Timothy to be sober-minded because what I'm getting ready to tell you is not fun Paul is in the maritime prison. He's waiting his execution. And yet we do not read in any of his writings, especially this is last writing, any discouragement. We don't see any despair. He is not cynical. He is not defeated. He's in a dark, damp dungeon where you can only get to it by ladder or rope. There are no windows, no lights, no toilets, no furniture, no running water. And he knows his time has come. Now, we all tend to avoid thinking or talking about death unless it's absolutely necessary. When author William Soroyan was within a few days of his death by cancer in 1981, he issued a statement to the Associated Press saying this, Everybody has got to die, but I always believe that an exception would be made in my case. So now what is his question? Now I know that, at least I believe that he wrote that, tongue-in-cheek. But don't we all at times or another go through life where we somehow think we are an exception? Just by the way we live. The choices that we make. It's unpleasant to contemplate. We put it off unless it's inescapable. And sadly, the truth is that most of us here this morning have found it inescapable. In the past couple of years, some of us have had to face the death of our own adult children. And I don't know how you bear the loss. Just yesterday, we received a call from a mother whose adult 
child passed from this life to the next unexpectedly. It doesn't get much tougher than that. We read in Psalm 55, The terrors of death are fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are upon me. The horror has overwhelmed me. I think he's expressing the same sentiments as many people. Bildad was Job's friend. He characterized death as the king of terrors. Now, early in the service, we read from Psalm 16, and it had a whole different tone to it. It was quite optimistic as David was contemplating his death. He starts off in verse 1, which we did not read, Preserve me, O God. But then he moves on to verses 8 and 9. I shall not be shaken. My flesh will dwell secure. And then he gets to verses 11, uh, 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So which is it? Is death the terror or is it something else? How are we to address this? Well, if later on you can look back at Psalm 16 in verse 1. He says, you are my safest refuge. I hide in you. In verse 10, he says, you are my sovereign Lord. You hold my lot. I revere you. And submit to you. You are my supreme treasure. I have no good beside you. And then in verse 7 he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. What is he saying? He's saying this. If God is your safest refuge. If he is your supreme treasure. If he is your sovereign Lord. If he is your trusted counselor. You can have confidence and faith that He is going to be with you as you face death. J.C. Ryle was an evangelical Anglican bishop in England, and he characterized these scriptures that we're looking at as Paul is looking downward, he's looking backward, and he's looking forward. I thought that was good imagery. He's looking downward at the grave. He's looking backward at his life and his ministry. And he's looking forward to the day when he is going to be with Christ. He looks downward at the grave, but he does not fear. His execution is at hand. He calls it his departure. Now, this Greek word for departure means comes from the root word to unloose. The idea is this, that you're on a ship that has been at the dock and your ship has been tied up and it can't move. This word departure comes from the unloosening of those ropes and those cables that are moored to the dock. The imagery is this. He's looking at the ropes being untied And he's on a ship that's getting ready to go where he wants to go. And he can't wait to get there. 
That's how he viewed death. It wasn't an end. It's a beginning to his destination. It would almost be like he's telling Timothy this. All on board is ready. I only wait to have the moorings cast off that fasten me to this shore. And I shall begin my voyage. Now, I want to be clear. Until Christ returns, death is our enemy. It robs us of the presence of the ones that we love. The Scripture does not ever condemn weeping or grief. In fact, we are to weep with those who weep. Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, though he knew Lazarus would rise from the dead. And as Christians, we may not grieve the way those without hope grieve, but we grieve. While he's thinking about the grave, he looks back over his life. I am ready to be poured out like a drink offering. Do you remember that famous verse in Romans 12? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, all of this sounds strange. After all, we don't live in a culture where there are religious sacrifices that are made as a way of life. Paul, however, lived in that day. There were sacrifices all around him, whether it was Jewish or pagan, Greco-Roman. There was blood everywhere. But Paul looked at his life in relationship to his surroundings, and he said, my life is a life of sacrifice. And he viewed every Christ follower in the same way. And the picture not only is strange, we, we kind of ask the, the question, how is this related to being dedicated to Christ? Well, he employs this, this picture, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Now, we don't know if he's thinking in terms of the Old Testament and Exodus when the priests were uh, told to pour a, uh, up to a gallon of wine either on top of or beside the sacrifice. Or was he referring to Greco-Roman practice, which actually did the same thing? Whether it was pagan or whether it was Old Testament sacrifice. The message is still the same. A drink offering is a sacrifice of that which brings joy in the normal life of things. And you pour it out or you waste it on the sacrifice. Now, when I say waste, what I mean is this. It looks wasteful for those who... uh, are addicted to, whether it's chemicals or whether it's alcohol or whatever it is, uh, they struggle with this because the, the whole idea of being without that which they're uh, addicted to is difficult to even contemplate, even those who are searching for Christ and even those who become Christians. It's just a part of their life. And then some people who spend a lot of money on wine, you would look at it and you'd go, well, that's a waste. 
Isn't that what uh, some of the disciples thought when the girl, the woman who was forgiven of her immorality, took this very expensive oil and she poured it on the Savior's feet? And everybody around her said, this is wasteful. Now, here's what they mean. You could have enjoyed that wine. You could have enjoyed that perfume. But no, you poured it out. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to see. He's pouring out his life not for himself, but for something that is greater than himself. From the world's point of view, it is wasteful. From God's point of view, it is a drink offering, a living sacrifice that we are being poured out for something that's greater than ourselves. Paul did not live his life for his own pleasure. And he's telling Timothy, I did not live my life for my own pleasure, but for Christ's sake. I have spent every last ounce of energy in me for the gospel. And Timothy, I'm coming to the end. It's being poured out. Now it's your turn. And God is saying to us, now it's your turn. Psalms 90:12 tells us to teach us our days to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days simply means remembering that your life is short. Your dying will come soon and great wisdom comes when we ponder those days. In nearly every funeral or memorial service at which I'm asked to speak, I will quote Ecclesiastes 7.2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. You see, you go to a party really to forget how hard life is. But we go to a funeral to remember how short life is. I say this to encourage you. This is not depressing. The reason it's not depressing is that we need to remember it's short. And if it's going to be short, if you want to have a happy and fulfilled life, you need to have purpose and meaning. Those who simply drift from moment to moment without purpose... At the end of their life, if they're thoughtful at all, they're going to ask the question, what did I do with my life? Have I wasted my life? Some of us, like William Soroyan, at the end of our life will ask, now what? So looking backward, he says, I fought the good fight. For the longest time, I looked at that as a boxer who's in the ring and he's fighting a good fight. That is not the imagery here. The imagery is that he's been a soldier. And he's been in the midst of the battle. And he has waged war against three enemies. One is the philosophy and the value systems and the... um, the priorities and the worldview of our culture. 
If you adopt those things that you continue to see on media, on television, movies, and in the songs, you are listening and adopting values and priorities that are opposed to the very thing God wants for you and that will bring real joy and happiness in your life. He fought the enemy of the flesh with his desires and hunger for pleasure because it's never filled. And then he fought the devil who seeks to destroy us all. And with any fight and any battle and any war, there's going to be scars. Whether you can see them or not, there are scars from the war. There are wounds, some of which cannot be healed. There was pain and there was suffering. And Paul experienced all that, and yet he is not in despair. And he doesn't want anyone to feel sorry for him. Because he fought the fight. He said, I finished my course. He ran the race that was marked out for him when I was in track in high school. I wasn't good at anything, and it was hard for the coach to put me in the run that he wanted me to run. So I filled in where we didn't have people to show up for those races. But there is a race that God has mapped out for each one of us. And Paul is saying, I did not let the pain of it deter me. He said, I kept the faith. That didn't mean that he went to church on Sunday mornings. It meant that he stayed true to the gospel every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. He did not mingle with the truth of the gospel man's ideas about things. He didn't try to... Say, we can be Christian, yet we can live like the world wants us to live because God loves us. He was a soldier. He was a runner. He was a steward. And he's telling Timothy, fight the good fight. Run your race and never give up. Never give in and stay true to the Christ who was crucified and was raised. Now, I know some of us say, well, you know, my conscience is clear. Everything's fine. I read this. I thought it was great. A good conscience will not save you. It will not wash away your mistakes or your sins. A good conscience will not get you one inch closer to heaven. However, a good conscience will be a pleasant friend at your bedside in your dying hour if you know Christ. But not only did he look downward at the grave and look backward at his life, he also looked forward 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me in that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. My friend, there is going to come a day that we will all stand before God. And what we have done with this crucified and risen Lord has eternal ramifications. And how we live our lives on this earth matters. During the last four years of the reign of Bloody Mary in England, in the 1500s, 288 people were burned at the stake because they refused to give up their belief in justification by faith alone. They would not give in to the church with its abuse of power and its misuse of the sacraments. John Rogers was the first to die. He was a godly pastor. He was not allowed to see his family while he was in prison. And on his way to his execution, his wife and ten children stood by on the road as he was going and marched toward the stake, and he calmly repeated Psalm 51. And there was a French ambassador who was watching all this, and he wrote this down. Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. He was. The second person who experienced the flames was Bishop John Hooper. He had a friend of his who tried to uh, convince him to recant. Hooper had led him to Christ, but he didn't want to see his friend die. And so he kept telling him, life is sweet, death is bitter, life is sweet, death is bitter. Finally, Hooper said, eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. Do you see two ways of looking at this crossroads of life and death? Roland Taylor was the third reformer. We're not going through 288. I'm ending with this. He had been a pastor at a town, and uh, they made him walk from London to his town to be burned in front of his church members. When he got about two miles out from town, the sheriff who was escorting him asked him how he felt. And he replied, God be praised, Mr. Sheriff, never better. For now I'm almost at home. I like just two styles or a few more steps to go over and I'll be in my father's house. This is what he told his former congregation. Excuse me. I have preached to you God's word and truth and come this day to seal it with my blood. You might say, Neil, you know, these were preachers. I'm not, I'm not a preacher. Back in the year 2000, John Piper spoke to nearly 40,000 young people college students. Thus, you're getting ready to hear why I had you to stand if you're 20 and under or 80 and older. They were at a passion conference. In 2000, John Piper really wasn't known, but this speech put him on the international stage. And he asked God, and he stayed before God on his knees for this to be an unforgettable 
time. And about five minutes into his speech, after most of all of his notes had blown away, it was an outside event. He told them this story. Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Ellison and Lori Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby, over 80, single all her life and a nurse, poured out her life for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities. And in her retirement, she partnered with Ruby, and she was pushing 80. And going from village to village in Cameroon, the brakes give way. Over the cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And he said to these young people, I asked my people at my church, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost of full life, devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away in trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they, referring to these two ladies, fly into eternity with a death in moments. Is this a tragedy? And you can hear from the video. You can go to YouTube and you can hear this speech. It's wonderful. The crowd of 40,000 says, no, it's not a tragedy. And then Piper says, I will read to you what a tragedy is. And you'll have to forgive me if this is offensive. He pulled out a page from Reader's Digest. And this is what he read to these 40,000 young people. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. He was 59 and she was 51. And they now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And then he told the crowd, that's a tragedy. There are people in this country that spend billions of dollars to get you to buy this way of looking at life. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did, are you going to say, Lord, here is my shell collection. I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your Life, he said. Then he repeated the famous words of C.T. Studd, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. C.T. Studd was a missionary to China, to India, to Africa. And he said this, this is convicting to me, I'm sorry. 
Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Nineteen years earlier, the Apostle Paul articulated the same thing. For me to, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You see, the Apostle's mission was to glorify the Savior in everything. And he would tell us, and he is telling us through what he wrote, and God is telling us through his word, do not waste your life. You only have one on this earth, and what will you do with it? And I'm going to ask all of us this question. What are you doing today that will outlive you? For in light of Christ's death on the cross, who took the penalty for our sins, and in light of his resurrection, which ensures salvation and eternal life to all who come to Christ, how will you respond to this invitation? On the day of your departure, will you be able to say, it is well with my soul? Would you pray with me? Father, it's a hard thing, but we are so grateful that there is hope in a risen Christ who is preparing a place for us because he loves us. So even as we sing this song, it is well with my soul, which is meaningful for those of us who know Christ. But, Father, I pray that you would help those who do not know Christ here to lift this song up in voice so that they will know and experience your grace. And that it would be a word and a prayer of confession. Resting. In Christ alone, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.